Colossians chapter 1, the second of 12 sermons from Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, the pastor's prayer. Paul was a unique individual in his ministry. There were probably only a small handful of men during the early Christian era who functioned as Paul did. Paul was preeminently a missionary, the first Christian missionary to the Gentiles, the most successful missionary of all time. Paul was an evangelist. He mounted the, uh, the hill in Athens where pagan gods were worshipped, where philosophers tried to unravel all of life's questions on the basis of human wisdom, and there he proclaimed to them the simple gospel that the God they knew nothing of had became flesh, had died for our sins, was risen from the dead, that men might know him and live forever. But Paul was also a pastor. Now, I've been trying to remember all of the details, but several years ago, it was published in some of our Baptist papers, I believe came through one of our convention magazines or something, that an individual within a church had submitted, when his church needed a pastor, a resume with a fictitious name and the qualifications of the Apostle Paul. He wrote on there the very... Impressive things. This man has the finest education that society has to offer. He has studied under the great theologians of our day. He is preeminently a thinker and qualified to handle very difficult situations. Now here is where he has been. He has been and he started naming various places, came to 15 or 20 places. And the longest he has ever been anywhere is just a little over two years. And he has spent time in some of the best jails in the nation. And when approached by an incredulous pulpit committee as to why he would recommend such a rascal, to his church. That brother had an impact on the process by which his church sought God's man and informed them that they had just ruled out the greatest preacher of all time as a candidate for their church. Paul was preeminently a missionary, an evangelist, a pastor. His phenomenal success was exceeded only by the tremendous obstacles and problems that he faced and stiff opposition everywhere that he went. Surely, one of the keys to his power was his prayer life. His prayer life comes to the forefront most prominently in the letters that he wrote from prison. They are the letters to the church at Philippi, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and the letter to a layman in the Colossian church named Philemon. And in these letters, we hear Paul praying earnestly and letting his prayers flow into the letters that he wrote because perhaps he realized fully while he was in prison that the only thing that he could do was to pray for those churches. But you know, I suspect that Paul learned something more than that. 
I suspect that Paul learned during this time as his later writings bear witness that the main thing he could do under any circumstances was to pray for the churches. For we hear him writing to the church at Corinth at a later date. Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? Who is Peter? We are only God's workmen. One may sow the seed. One may reap it. One may do this. One may do that. But it is God that gives the increase. And preeminently the pastor's position brings a man to a place of prayer for his people. It brings him to a place of prayer. I think probably the most grieved that I have ever been, and I'll share it with you in, in, in no malice, no, no bitterness at all, was several weeks ago when one of our fine men called for a group of men to join him in special prayer after a Wednesday night service. And so after that, there were several together praying. I walked by having something else that had to be done at that time. And an individual who, by the way, was not involved in the prayer said, don't you believe in praying for your people? I couldn't hardly believe what I was hearing. But it is symptomatic. It is symptomatic of bitterness, of hatred, of ungodliness, and probably of a lack of salvation that will let someone turn a microscope on someone else without any awareness of any need in their own lives. Preeminently, the pastor is called to prayer for his people. Those of you whom I know by name, which is nearly all of you, I pray for. Pray for often, as did Paul. And I think the prayer that Paul prayed here in Colossians chapter 1 is a, such a good example of the kinds of things that God has appointed us to to pray for each other, the kinds of things that he wants us to accomplish in our Christian lives. We need to be aware that prayer is not delusion. Prayer is not superstition. And folks, whether it's individual or in a group, prayer is not some kind of therapy by which we make ourselves feel better. Prayer is a reality. Prayer is letting God get hold of us until we are in a position to get hold of God and call Him in to do what needs to be done, what He wants done in our situation. Paul was consumed by the earnest desire that each Christian should understand who he is in Christ what he possesses in Christ, that we might possess all that we own as the children of God and that we might remember with every day of our lives that we represent Jesus in a lost world. You know, we misunderstand prayer sometimes. You know, I believe in prayer and I believe in special prayer. But beloved, 
every Wednesday night with a list added to after we get here of exact specific needs and people's names. We invite all who will worship, all who will, to go to God right there, right then, and call names to God. You know, sometimes we feel a need for Bible study and what the big trend in conservative churches is home Bible studies. Listen, if you'd leave the world outside and study the Bible in Sunday school, it might begin to satisfy you. That's what Sunday school is. It is Bible study. That's what prayer meeting is for. It is for prayer. And God calls us to remember what we are, who we are, what we possess, and that we represent Him in this world. I would remind you, as is so evident in the ministry of Paul, not to mention Jesus, Peter, the brother of our Lord James, the Apostle John, that the pastor's task is not to please people. It is to lead people to please God. That is his task. He does it through prayer and the ministry of the Word. I like the way Dr. W.A. Criswell said it several years ago. It's made an impression on me. My brother who, was, who worked with Dr. Criswell for two years said it this way. For it is without a doubt that that great church with over 20,000 members who sees... Uh, 10,000 people in worship every Sunday has a Christian fellowship which would seem to be impossible to achieve. Dr. Criswell says it this way. He says, I learned after I came to Dallas in this vast congregation that I cannot put my arms around everybody, but I can put my arms around some, and each one of them may put their arms around others and so being equipped to do the work of the ministry, we all may put our arms around the church. The pastor's prayer reveals the pastor's heart. And my task through prayer and the ministry of the Word is to equip you to minister to others and in that way to please God. I would remind you in Acts chapter 6 that the apostle Peter said it is not right. In other words, it is wrong, and wrongness is sin. Now, is that logical? Paul says, it, Peter said, it, it is not right. That means it's wrong, and that means it's sin. Peter said, it is sin for me to forsake prayer and the ministry of the word to do lesser things. Now, there are many things that I will do if I can to please, but I will not turn my back on the express command of God that I preach the Word and be a man of prayer. Here is the pastor's prayer, Colossians 1, 9 through 11. Notice, first of all, in verse 9, the pastor prays that the people might have knowledge of God. We read, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased 
to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is very much like the prayers of Peter in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 17 to 19. Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. Paul says, since the day we heard of it. Now the it was their stature as a church. The church at Colossae was a great church. It was an influential church. It was an aggressive church. It was an evangelistic church. And though it was in the smallest of three cities in the Lycus River Valley, it was the preeminent church in that area. And because of that, Paul never ceased to pray for them. Now, what does he mean, that he prayed 24 hours a day? No, of course not. Of course not. For Paul realized that among many things that we as believers do, we commit ourselves to prayer. We lay hold of God. We let God lay hold of us. And then we rise off of our blessed assurances and move forward on the promises of God. What Paul meant was that habitually, regularly, daily, whenever he could, whenever he thought of it, whenever there was a need, he prayed. Not continual, but habitual and regular. Paul wants them to know the full will of God without any restrictions. Paul was governed only by the Lord and his word. And he wanted the people of Colossae to know every detail of what God wanted to be done. Now, Paul did not want them to have speculative knowledge. And here is a good rule of thumb, and you can write down, file it away in your mind somewhere, and remember it. That when you become interested in a side issue of Scripture, and when you become interested in a detail of Scripture or a, a particular item of something that takes your eyes off of Jesus that would put your Christian witness and your evangelism and your uh, outreach for the Lord on hold, when you identify something like that, the devil's trying to sidetrack you. I like the way Shad Lockridge says it. S.M. Lockridge, a black pastor from California, one of the greatest preachers in the history of our nation, uh, he didn't say it the other day at the state convention when he preached there, but he said it years ago, and I've never forgotten it. Nearly everybody I know has quoted Lockridge since then. He said about the times when we get consumed with how God is going to do what. Now, I believe we ought to study prophecy. We ought to know the Word. We ought to be aware of what God's Word teaches. But well, not to be dominated by it because as Shad Lockridge says, God didn't put us on the program committee. He put us on the preparation committee. We are to be involved in knowledge of God's will that is not speculative but is practical, that produces right living, that produces service to God. Now the word here translated knowledge is the word for full knowledge. You've heard me refer in the introduction to Colossians and in the book of 1 John 
to the Gnostic teachers, the ones who claimed a special revelation, that special revelation which contradicted everything Jesus had said about himself. Well, the word Gnostic is simply a transliteration of the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. And I believe that Paul is using a play on words here because the word he uses is the word epinosis, which means the fullness of knowledge, all knowledge, knowledge in all of its completeness. And he is telling the Christians at Colossae, you don't need the knowledge of the knowers, for he himself, the Lord, will reveal the full knowledge of his will to you. Now, what does he mean when he says the will of God? I believe that one reason why so many folks have trouble determining the will of God for their lives is that they misinterpret what the will of God is. You know, have you ever heard anybody say, God led me to do thus and such? And what God led you to do, led them to do, and I put that in quotation marks, wasn't out in left field, it was on the other side of the fence. You see, we've come to try to make God a servant to our own thought processes. The will of God, as Paul uses it here, indeed as it is used in all of Scripture, refers to God's plan for His work in our world. And beloved, God will never lead you to do anything that does not fit into His plan as he has revealed it in his word. For instance, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. Well, there's more than one storehouse. There's not more than one per person. But let's get it down on a little more practical level than that. Why don't you take the Bible, start in Genesis, and go to Revelation and find one time, one time, when God's people ever brought an offering anywhere other than the local place of worship. New Testament or old? One time. There is no time. God didn't lead anybody to do that. God doesn't lead anybody to do anything different than what he's revealed in his word. In my Bible reading last night, I read the last three chapters of 1 Corinthians and Paul says to them in taking an offering for the saints who were suffering in Judea in and around Jerusalem. He says, now every one of you every week lay aside an offering in accordance with his income and bring it to the church so that it will be there when I arrive. Even when it went somewhere else, it came to the church. Now that's God's way of doing it. Any other way of doing it is sin. It's that simple. God reveals himself and God's will, as Paul uses, is God's plan as God reveals himself. He wants them to have full knowledge of God's will. And God's will is revealed in his word, his eternal purposes. And his word is open to all who will allow him to lead them into a study of the scriptures. Now very often, I recall I heard it growing up in Sunday school. I heard it in Sunday school classes in college where there were some of us boy geniuses who always knew better than the college Sunday school teacher who was usually a PhD from the college. 
Well, that's your interpretation. Well, there's something interesting about that in scriptures. In 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, Peter says this, But know this, first of all, that no scripture is a matter of private interpretation. There is one legitimate, God-given interpretation of Scripture. There are many applications. There is one interpretation. Paul wants them to know God's will in its fullness. We find it as we obey His Word. Now what Paul is concerned about at Colossae is that the high state of their spiritual attainment brings with it a risk. The risk is that the higher they go spiritually, the harder the devil will worship against them. The devil doesn't hassle carnal Christians. And when you identify somebody that can live in a way that obviously is not the way a Christian ought to live without any feelings of remorse, you've, in, you've identified someone who is so far away from God, the devil doesn't even mess with them. But when you get with God's program and you begin to know God's will and you become committed to obeying God and learning His will through His word, the devil's going to kick you every chance he gets. And Paul was concerned that that would happen to them. If we know Him and if we know His will, Paul says in the latter words of verse 9, it will be because of His gift of spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so the pastor prays for the people to have a knowledge of God and His will. The pastor prays for the people that they might have a worthy walk. Verse 10, Paul writes, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now the word walk used here obviously means our way of life, our manner, our way of living, our activity, our doing of what God leads us to do. God's purpose in our knowing Him is that we be like Him and that we do His will. Now that's a place where a lot of folks get sidetracked. There are whole denominations that, and it, it really is a little frightening to me, there are whole denominations that believe the Word of God, that teach it faithfully, but the whole end of their existence has become to know and to teach the Word of God. That's the whole end of their existence. They have come to a theology that is faulty, gone to seed on the sovereignty of God and says, here we are, world. We'll proclaim the word. We'll teach the word. We'll preach the word. And world, if God wants you to have the word, you'll come and get it. That's sad. The reason God wants us to know him is so that we can make a difference in that world around us. The purpose of our knowing is that we be and that we do 
And I am pleased that in the various groups of our church, among the youth, among some of our adults, that they meet with regularity other than Sundays and Wednesdays to pray and read the Bible. I'd like to see you meet together to pray and go win the loss to Jesus. We have Bible study and worship. We need evangelism. We need to witness. We need to tell people about Christ. That's what it's all about. Knowledge of God is in order that we may have a worthy walk. And I want to remind you that right thinking, according to Paul, will produce right living. Right thinking will produce right living. I made a statement in the introduction. I said my task is to lead you to please God. Notice what it says in verse 10. That you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. To please Him in all respects. The purpose of the church is not, has never been to please anybody but Jesus. That's what it's all about to please Him, to anticipate His wishes. He reveals Himself to us in order that we may glorify Jesus. The purpose of all creation and of every one of us is to glorify God. That's what it's all about. We know Him as we walk with Him daily and obey His Word. He says that we please Him in all respects, in every way, every way. And there is no possibility of rendering service to God by any minute or great degree of compromising what God teaches that does not glorify God, that denies His existence. Well, I know what's right, but we've got to be realistic. After all, we've got to work with people. Folks, I want you to remember something. Just write this in block letters that high and put it on the wall. The people are dealing with God. He really is in charge. He really does have something to say. And it is amazing to me that in the life of any church, there very seldom ever is anything that is not covered by the principles of Scripture. That's why it's foolish and ridiculous for uh, young people in every generation. Two generations ago, it was playing cards. A generation ago, it was dancing. Today, and some of you parents and grandparents had better wake up to realize it. It's not playing cards and dancing and going to movies, folks. It's illicit sex and hard drugs. That's why it is pointless, whatever the generation, to say, where does the Bible say that? That's like the brilliant question, where does the Bible say a deacon ought to tithe? The Bible's not a book of situations, it's a book of principles. And there is virtually nothing that happens in a life of a church that is not covered by the principles of God's Word. Paul says that we are to please Him in every respect. Now this word worthy is a word the Greek has the sense of weight in it. And what Paul literally said is, and this is, this is frightening, 
Paul said that our lives are to be as heavy as the life of Jesus. Now, literally, the idea of weight, the picture is in scales. And as you know, in the ancient world, the only way they had to weigh something was to uh, establish a standard of weight and to put a weight of a certain size on one side of the scales and to put something else on the other side. And when they were perfectly balanced, they knew that the thing on the other side weighed as much as the standard. Paul says the standard is Jesus and the goal of the Christian life is to be as heavy as his life, to weigh as much as his did. Now that's a tall order. And our goal is to walk worthy of Him, a life worth as much as His life, and to make a goal of anything less, even though we will not achieve it in this life, is to plan to sin. To make our goal any lower than that is to plan to sin. Then Paul says that the way that we please him in all respects, verse 10, is bearing fruit in every good work and increasing, and here it is again, in the knowledge of God. Bearing fruit in every good work. Paul says that fruitlessness is deadness. James, the brother of our Lord, said in his letter that faith without works is dead. In other words, faith without works is no faith at all. In the book, in the Gospels rather, the Lord Jesus stated the truth, by their fruits you shall know them. In Romans chapter 15, Paul says, mark those who cause divisions and do not even associate with them. What is our fruit? You want to know what somebody's full of? What is the fruit of their life? What is the fruit? The fruits of the works of the flesh, Galatians 5, are, involve strife and envy and jealousy and bitterness and hurt feelings and things like that. You identify somebody like that, you've identified a carnal Christian. What are the fruits of the, the fruit of the Spirit is, Paul writes, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, meekness, kindness, self-control. What is our fruit? It is to be Christ-likeness, and the Christ-likeness will produce the fruit of other Christians. Putting into practice what we know is the purpose of our knowledge of God. And so the pastor's prayer from the pen of Paul involves knowledge of God, but that that knowledge might be put into practice in a worthy walk. And then in verse 11, it involves, the king, it involves power for endurance. Paul writes, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. The word might is the word dunamis, which means naked, unbridled power, where we get our English word dynamite. It involves power for endurance, strength of character, strength of conviction, strength for daily living through His presence. And we are limited only by His power. 
We are to employ his power to endure as Christ did. Notice a thing about the life of Jesus Christ. He never employed his power for his own benefit. He always employed it on behalf of others or to endure when things got rough. We are to call on God's power as Christ did. We are to be upright and clean. We are to be winsome and Christ-like in the face of temptation. We are to be steadfast, and the word means a conquering endurance, an uncomplaining endurance, reminding you that in the Old Testament, quoted in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul, God hates murmuring and complaining. Paul said, let everything be done without murmuring and complaining. It means to endure, but to endure triumphantly. And then he uses the word patience translated here. It means bearing with others in their faults, without bitterness. It means teaching those who do not know. It means not being cynical, not despairing, but trusting the Lord. So Paul prays that the church might know power for endurance. And then Paul prays in verse 12 that we might take part in the kingdom of light. He says, now the last ver word of verse 11 goes with verse 12. When you put the punctuation marks in it, translated in the, the New American Standard, which is just word for word with the Greek New Testament, he says, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Joyously. If there is no joy in your life, are you listening? There is no Jesus in your life. No joy, no Jesus. It is not related to circumstances, our joy. You are never unhappy because of what somebody else did. You're unhappy because of sin in your own life, because it is sin to despair. It is sin to give up on God. It is sin to not receive every day everything that belongs to you, which is the fullness of the presence of Jesus. No joy, no Jesus. Paul said in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And then notice that joyfulness and thanksgiving go together. Joyfulness and thanksgiving go together. You just can't have one without the other. Joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Love never gives up. He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. He has qualified us to abide in light. We don't deserve anything that he's done for us. Where he is, there is light. Now, you know, sometimes we think that God's very cruel because there are going to be people who don't go to heaven. What makes you think that somebody who hated God in this life would be happy where God is in the next life? Heaven would be hell to someone who didn't love Jesus. And God has so made this universe that we must respond to his love in this lifetime. Their full knowledge of him will be ours. There will be joy. There will be happiness unbounded. What a prayer it is that Paul prays. What a blessed truth 
to know that Jesus supplies everything that we need to overcome everything that we face every day. Where is there room for discouragement? Where is there room for despair if this is true? His might, the limit of our power for Christian living is His power. The limit to our power for Christian living is His power. That's how we're limited. And as the saying that I saw several years ago and have remembered ever since says, may the omnipotence, the all power of God, may the omnipotence of God be the measure of our expectations. May we pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word, for what it reveals to us. And Lord, I thank you that Paul just shares his heart in his letters that he reveals the things he prays for to us. And Father, I claim that prayer as I have already done this day on behalf of this people. Father, I pray that every one of them may know you and in the knowing of you that their lives may be cleansed of unrighteousness of every kind, that my life may be cleansed that we individually and collectively may walk worthy of Jesus every day. Father, I pray that you'd give us power for endurance. And Father, I pray that you would give us joy. I thank you for the promise that we're going to inherit what you've provided for those who love you. Now, Father, you know what we need today. You know where we are. We are poor and needy sinners. We're without any goodness of our own. We're without any strength, without any wisdom. We're without the ability to carry out the things we know we ought to do. And so I claim your presence, the fullness of your spirit and your power on the life of every worshiper here today. Now, Father, you lead us one day at a time to do what you want us to do. Teach us that you reveal yourself to us as we walk with you and obey your word. And Father, from those who are gathered here today, I pray that you would draw the kind of commitment that will bring a changed life to the glory of Jesus and the salvation of souls. I thank you that it shall be so. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.